0: Welcome to Healthcare Experience Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation and is dedicated to transforming the healthcare experience so that every person can receive and deliver the best care. We invite you to learn more by visiting healthcareexperience.org. Good morning. We're glad that you joined us this morning. We're going to talk about an important topic, addressing burnout and retention. Um, What are those leadership practices that you could put into place and giving you some key takeaways today so you can walk away with something new that you can start doing and then learn about what other additional resources exist for your organization. I'm going to be your facilitator this morning. It's going to be action packed. We've got um, our two experts with us, our executive leaders. and so. As a f- facilitator, I've been doing healthcare for about 24 years and all kinds of capacities and really enjoy the part about problem solving and bringing new and best practices to our audience that we uh, serve. So we're excited. We're going to share some new things you might not have heard of before, and then also some best practices of maybe refining something that you know to be true that you've used and, and maybe in a new way looking at it and how you could do it. So here's what we're going to talk about today in this action-packed session. We want to talk about how we define burnout, not a new term. We've heard it before, but maybe with a different twist. We want to describe what the five causes of burnout are. And then we're going to try to get through five best practices in deliberate leadership to retain and refresh and we know we're going to really deep dive into three of those and know that at the end, I'll repeat myself and you'll have the opportunity to let me know if you would like a handout of all five best practices that more more elaborates everything we wanted to share today. When we do these webinars, we always ask you, hey, what's keeping you up at night? And frequently what we hear is nurse retention. It's been a hot ticket for a long time. COVID exacerbated it. And now um, everyone is looking at how do we retain the workforce that we do have? How do we keep them engaged? How do we keep them from leaving? Um, knowing that your ongoing long-term goal is always retaining or, or gathering and and. obtaining new and fresh um, um, talent, but you want to keep the ones you have. And so that's what we hope to share with you today, a different perspective and how you can look at it. So, you know, we're as good as the team we surround ourselves with, and I surround myself with really smart, intelligent women. Um, Kathleen Lynham is an executive coach who's had many years as a nursing leader and chief nursing officer. Um, I've worked with her. I've seen her in action Um, from a Midwest girl learning from a Jersey girl. I've learned a lot in um, handling um, difficult people. Not that we don't all have some difficult people in our lives, but she does it in such a way with great finesse. And Deborah Zastaki, who has also been, has a myriad of experience as our executive coach, has not only been a president of a health system, but she's also been a chief nursing officer, started out in nursing. So she brings a a whole nother perspective in what she has uh, experienced, but also um, put into place and implemented. So I'm with some really great talent today. I'm excited for all that they've um, put into the research and what they know and the best practices they want to share. So I am going to turn this over next to Kathleen, who's going to help us define burnout.
1: Thanks, Brooke. Um, and the good news is both Dr. Sestaki and I are from New Jersey. So we will get used <laughs> to this. We will cover those five best practices in 35, and 45 minutes because we're from New Jersey. Jersey girls can do that. So here's a definition of burnout. We've heard a lot of them. Um, this one is actually authored by uh, our colleague, Dr. George Mazel, who we work with, and he describes it as the syndrome of emotional exhaustion. It's interesting in our research, the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared burnout as an occupational hazard way back in 2018, I think. So it's been around prior to COVID, but certainly exacerbated over the last few years. And the key thing that we're all feeling with, with burnout is um, this depersonalization. That's the part that hurts not only the people around you, but yourself. Uh, I did a webinar a couple of weeks ago on empathic distress, which a lot of us in healthcare have been experiencing because we feel so much for the people going through like Turkey today. How many of us are just empathically distressed, over 19,000 people already gone and their families. But we feel, even with empathic distress, we feel with burnout, we've lost that ability to connect with each other, with ourselves. And so it's dramatic. And I believe you have set up uh, our colleague here to talk about where else do we see the impact of burnout in our healthcare world? Yeah, Deborah, so,
0: you know, we talk about burnout and people... I have assimilated that with COVID, but in reality, it's been around even before COVID.
2: Yes, and as Kathleen had mentioned, you know, it certainly had been cited before that. We've had issues with staffing shortages, recognition that we've needed to make modifications in the way we deliver health care. We've had uh, really prime clinical staff doing things that are non-value-added functions such as clerical or some other types of functions. So there's really been a big recognition before this, but COVID really just escalated everything and really we'll talk a bit about this in a moment, but what really now is requiring something very different from us in our responses. And as was mentioned in the prior slide, these are not new to you, you know, the fatigue, the insomnia, but what is really concerned, the impaired concentration, what does that mean for performing safe patient care? Um, absenteeism, uh, clearly, you're already short and I've got people calling out sick, you know, the myriad of issues and even depression. And you think about before COVID, the physician suicide rate was high, but now it's even escalated further. So there's a great deal of need in our uh, clinical community. And as we talked about the personal component, think about the enjoyment, but it's really so many times we're seeing people feeling detached, they're isolated, they're not quite sure how to connect with people. And then, of course, what does that mean? It ends up being irritability with yourself, with others, with patients. And and then, of course, we see that in the overall performance of increased errors and use of temporary staff and everything really seeming like we don't have a good Uh, team and effectiveness going forward. And really, uh, we'll talk a bit about this, but one in three RNs, according to the McKenzie report, are planning on retiring in the next year or resigning, so to speak. So, you know, that, you know, you're ready now, we're predetermining thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next. So it's not surprising that burnout and retention are issues you know, we talk about has caused many to leave, but also we've heard the term quiet quitting. And that's equally concerning because these people are in our environments, but yet they're not producing, they're not helping. And sometimes they can also be a part of the demoralization of what's transpiring on the uh, departmental units. You know, Deborah, you can walk onto a unit and feel that energy. You can almost tell,
0: you know, I've done a thousand hours sitting bedside with patients and I would walk into some units and I'd say to myself, something's amiss here. You could just feel almost the tension that exists, right? And everyone takes that on, even, even the new nurses take that on. And so that's something you want to protect them from. So here's a new term. I love I love these growth minds. Kathleen uh, and Deborah are both readers. And so they're always saying, hey, have you heard of this? It's called <laughs> zeitgeist. If anyone can put into chat what that means, we have a book. We're going to share Dr. Maisel's book with you. We're going to send it to you for free. Um, it's a new term. So if anyone,
2: Zygeist. It really it speaks to the spirit of the age, you know, the, the period that you're living in. And if you can relate to, in the U.S., post 9-11, there was such a unity and a patriotism because everyone was coming together to support one another in view of a national tragedy. What seems to be appearing now in the U.S. is more of this incivility, this impatience, this whole notion of social and political unrest, this disconnecting of people. And it's not just in the U.S., but actually globally. We see this in numerous examples around the world. And what's uh, amazing to me is hospitals used to be a very trusted source by the public. And in a survey that was recently performed, hospitals in 2020 were Seen as the most trusted by 51% of the population. By 2022, that trust level has dropped to 38%. So, you know, one of our most cherished healthcare institutions, hospitals, and the whole healthcare system are now being seen in a very jaded and uh, distrustworthy type of environment. So it's no surprise that, you know, we see all this stuff about the workforce issues. And I think it's critical for us to understand as both um, whether we're providers of care or leaders uh, in our areas, but leaders are also depleted and they're facing similar issues, uh, internal, external challenges. And part of what we're trying to talk about today is really reconnecting to our common Humanity and how do we need learn to change when change is new, hard, and difficult?
0: So we know, uh, Kathleen, that one crisis is manageable, but here we have a whack-a-mole. What happens when we're
1: bombarded? <laughs> I bet I bet they'd fill in that chat box in two seconds about what happens when you're bombarded. You know, we all have a physiological response when there's a crisis, when our amygdala is hijacked, when this. Those of us nurses we go into command control. We're in charge. We boss people around. We do this. We do that. We, our heart rate goes up. Our pulses go up. We're in that mode, but that can't happen over and over and over and over again. Our bodies cannot take that. And guess what? The most important thing is that style is not going to work for every crisis that we're coming up with. So my colleague is going to describe a really not new, but a, um, A really important um, personal skill that we've got to practice to help us manage these crises. And it can be done any day in any given day, but it it creates a challenge. And in this next slide on this burnout and what, what it's doing to all of us, this work, I think, is fabulous. It's done by the Burnout Challenge. It's probably the seminal work on research on What's the causes of burnout? Now, the interesting thing is they say that there's six possible mismatches between an employee and their job. And guess what? We've had these mismatches for a long time. I, I you know, I remember in, in 1978, when I was a brand new nurse, thinking about workload and worrying about, was I going to be able to manage my 10 patients at night and all of that. So let me take a moment and just give you a couple of examples of what is the content within these workload within these dimensions here. So workload, you know, they, you're evaluating the level of demand on my time, how frequently I take on new tasks, how often am I interrupted, the number of um, crises that I have to deal with each day. And then we look at lack of control. As a nurse manager, sometimes you feel like I've got no say about anything. As a staff member, sometimes we feel like I have no say over where I'm going. Biggest challenge in my day was being floated. My staff would be like, I came to work for you. Now I've got to be floated to another unit. I don't know how to take care of those patients. So lack of control is about also referencing the amount of collaboration that we have, the amount of group decision-making, and here's a critical part with the lack of control, the balance of my authority and my responsibility, and so that's a, an element there. Value conflict is huge. We um, we we are you're going to talk about our compassionate leadership conference and, and um, foundations there. I would guarantee you, everyone in this on this call today has compassion written as a value somewhere in their organization. But the truth of the matter is. Do we, do we practice self-compassion? Do we lead with compassion? Do our leaders, our executives, is there a mismatch between what they're saying and what they're doing? All that leads to value conflict. Insufficient rewards have been around forever, not just pay and benefits, although for the first time since I've been coaching in the last 16 years, pay and benefits matter, I want to feel that I'm being fairly compensated, but it's also about recognition. It's about appreciation from others. And the last two, I think, are the saddest, if anything, is the breakdown of community. That means that's referring to our psychological safety. Do I feel have confidence in the reliability of my staff when I don't even know my staff? Do I have um The frequent respectful encounters when I'm talking to someone, am I put down because I'm new, I'm a traveler, am I this? The amount of time I got to work around other people. So community is important. And then finally, absence of fairness. We have done many workshops on site and across the country on diversity, inclusion, and incivility and lack of respect is paramount. So when you're evaluating this, where you know you there's these elements in it and then you have to determine are these elements is it a good match, a mismatch, or a major mismatch? And I think we have a poll that we can use right now with our with our our attendees on board, if you wouldn't mind, we're going to ask you, what do you see is the greatest source of employee mismatch? So in other words, what do you think your employees would say is the greatest source of mismatch? Is it the workload? You wouldn't be shocked because there's so much work going on around the country. I um, mean, you can fill that in right on your um, on the side there. Is it the lack of control? I have no control over everything. Is it that value conflict? Is it insufficient rewards, the breakdown of community or absence of fairness? And while you're doing this, I'll just, you know, just briefly mention the workload is paramount and there's work being done around the country. And I just reread reports from Duke. UNC about, duh, finally realizing, oh, the nurse spends less than 30% of her time in direct patient care. And these other tasks are frustrating and causing burnout, not just nurses. I'm just talking about them. And so redesigning the patient care model is going to be critical, but we can't do that in isolation. We have to call people out and ask them what we'd like to do about that. So where um, we Can we see the results of the poll? Yes, yes we can. Okay. There you go. There you go. Ah, so 58% feel workload, lack of control, insufficient rewards, breakdown of community, absence of fairness. I'm not surprised. It's very, very reflective of what we're seeing around the country. It's so hard to rise above when I'm struggling with managing my, my and I'm not getting joy from being able to manage the work there.
0: Kathleen, I would just add that uh, one of the things that our team does is we go on site to do ethnographic research, which is direct observation. And in, in doing that, we will find ways to enhance their working environment so that they're not busy spending a third of their time looking for resources or additional food from the kitchen to give medications. So we're looking at all those things that prohibit them from being bedside. Um knowing that that they want to spend more time with the patient, but maybe everything is pulling them away from the patient, and that's contributing to that burnout when that workload comes in play.
2: And if I could add, too, based upon being in the healthcare arena for such a prolonged period of time, we've been through some of this and some of this, um, We've uh, done through some of the re-engineering work and really looking at value-added, non-value-added work. And you can really see as time went on with various models of healthcare delivery uh, that you can really make an improvement. It's quantifiable and it makes an untold number of positive events once you can put all of those pieces together. Yeah, and sometimes it's not complicated and it doesn't cost anything to just really
0: understand, you know. Awesome. All right. So, you know, we've heard about the issue. We know in detail what the issues are. What can we start
1: to do? What are some of those evidence-based best practices? And and the key here is what can we do? And I I know there's a a whole continuum of people here from team members, team leaders, managers, directors, chief experience officers. We, we, as the critical world, each one of us can make a difference. We can offer hope um, to those who are staying and to those that are coming. Um, Uh, I know a lot of you have heard me say this, it's not an original statement, but as a leader, you know, we can be the light at the end of the tunnel, we can be a source of inspiration, we can be a source of hope, of collaboration, of engagement and, and being there empathically for each other, or we can be as my husband would say, the light at the end of the tunnel, which is an oncoming train, which is going to knock your socks off and say, move over. I got things to do. We got people to go. I got goals to meet, objectives to meet. And you're either on board or you're off board. Um, so we have a choice to make. Uh, another, another way I read uh, how you can say it, perhaps more eloquently, is we've had the year of the great resignation. Well, why not? Do we want to be the source of the great attrition or the great retention? It's in our hands. And so we're gonna give you five because we have time because we're from New Jersey, five best practices to share. And the next slide is the first one because as with everything, it has to begin with you, with ourselves. So this is another example of evaluating your workload. So everyone on this call now, whoever many you are, Um, I want you, a poll is gonna come up and I want you to evaluate evaluate your own workload. And you can do this because it's important to begin with taking care of yourself. So when the poll comes up, it's gonna ask you about the level of demand on my time. Is it just right? I feel I'm okay with it. I can handle the demand on my time. Give it a just right, or if it's a mismatch, remember there may be out of a line but it's not driving you crazy. Or the third is a great mismatch, which means it's a great departure from what your ideal work environment is like. How frequently do you take on new tasks? Just right? Eh, a little more than I really would care to in the best world, or three. Oh my God, every day I'm overwhelmed with something. Frequency of unanticipated incidents. That's the whack a mole. That's where, oh my God, I got to take care of the patient who's losing it there, the family member here. My staff is now calling in sick for here. I'm constantly interrupted with incidents just right, uh, out of alignment, or a great mismatch. How often others interrupt my flow? I mean, you're in the middle of doing something and you get the phone call, you've got to go down here. Maybe not an incident, but where others interrupt you. And this final one, this probably will come out the highest. Number of texts or emails that interrupt your workflow during the day. So fill that out while you're there. And let's see what your response is, because then you have something you can work on tomorrow when you go home or it's this afternoon. you got all day because we're going to.
0: Kathleen, get- we actually know there's research to support that myth of multitasking, That's that right. multitasking really doesn't work. I mean, I worked with Johns Hopkins and I remember that they got vests for their nurses to put on when they were distributing medications because they needed to have uninterrupted workflow just to concentrate and not make mistakes. And so we know that we need that thinking time to actually solve some of the issues that we handle daily.
1: You're right. And so looking, you can see the results for yourself. You're interrupted and unanticipated events all the time. This is a conversation to have with the directors in your peer group. This is a conversation to have with your superior. And this is where when we talk about how do you start to make changes, make incremental small changes, start small and say, what's the pebble? What's really, What are the thing, who interrupts my flow? And is there a way I can put my phone on, on um, silent mode or do not interrupt? Is there a way that I can say, I'm only gonna do my emails then unless it's a crisis? There's opportunity, but you have to take control for yourself here. So our number one best practice is begin by evaluating your workload, have a conversation with others. And trust me, it's going to be a ripple effect because our peers are going to be in the same situation as you. My colleague is going to talk about this other very important individual best practice.
0: I love this term too. Share this new term, another new term.
2: <laughs> yes. And there's much, uh, there's an entire book written, uh, there's a lot of work done in Harvard about this, but it's, yeah, deliberate calm is really an important addition to your personal toolkit. And I'm just going to go over the some of what it, the definition of what this is. And it's uh, on the next slide. Will uh, it's a practice of adaptive. Intentional choice. And that's really the most important thing. So I'm going to talk about making this be a practice, a disciplined practice, and it is intentional. And obviously, emotional intelligence, self-awareness, mindfulness, these are all within that cadre. But I'm going to share with you how I've used this. And I'm sure none of you have had wild, crazy uh, providers in your office screaming, yelling, you know, off with their heads, you know, what are you doing? You're... You know, don't can't you manage these crazy nurses? Or you know why? You know, isn't there something here? And blah blah blah. So you've you've done that, and so I like to. If you look on the to the right to the slide, is really um, self awareness is where it begins, and it begins both uh, at the time of an event, but it also is. Equally important to be thinking about the way you are in general. So you're reflecting when you're not in an acute situation. And, you know, I had to kind of recognize, so what are the signs and symptoms I have when I'm feeling under stress? And what are the situations that cause me to be under stress? You know, for some situations, they wouldn't bother somebody else, but they definitely bothered me. And I tried to use this little um, model in my head, which is Teb. And so I like to think about what are my thoughts, what are my emotions, and what are my behaviors. And when I think about that, uh, as an example, if I have somebody, you know, screaming in my face, stop whatever you're doing, you need to run to the OR, there's trouble in paradise or something. You know, I'm feeling attacked. You know, I, I sense, oh my goodness, this person's attacking me and I'm feeling anxious you know, really, you know, like, oh, my goodness, defensive. And then, of course, as a behavior, what I might normally do if you had a chance to do it would be to avoid, you know, go the other way. And I've always said throughout the years to the people, um, especially my direct reports and people I've uh, coached over the years, doing what comes naturally is self-destructive. So if you naturally would like to either react or speak, you know, whatever. That's that is not going to be a successful strategy in the end. And you know, no matter what somebody says, but they said, and it's like, no, it doesn't matter what they said. It's what you need to be focusing on.
1: So I, I
2: always try to do stop, like S T O P. But like, I stop and pause, especially if I'm in the situation. Like, what is going on? What what what's happening? I'm I'm recognizing these symptoms. You know, my heart rate's up. I'm feeling a little anxious and buzzed. Then I take a breath. And I've always found the 30 second calming breath technique to be invaluable. And all you do is and I'm going to demonstrate it to you. You take a breath, you put a little smile on your face, not a smile, a little smile. And you Exhale and you say, I am calm. I can handle this. So it's simply like this through your nose and out your mouth. Yep. And you get it out and nobody knows what you're doing, but it does have a physiologic effect on re-triggering like a more calming sensation in your body. So right off the bat, I'm taking care of me and not getting hooked by somebody. Then I like to observe and reflect uh, sometimes, especially in the beginning, I had to visualize and my visualization was a bubble and I am in the bubble. And I don't know if you've seen that commercial with that big, red, easy, red button. Well, yeah. I felt like sometimes people thought that big, red, easy thing was on my chest and they're here to do it. So I was just I have a bubble. You may attempt to push my button but you are not going to get to my button. And you know, that reflection, reflection really speaks to, you know, what are some of the old habits and ways of being that have worked for me? What hasn't worked for me? Um, what are the things that I'm willing to try to see and do differently? How am I reflecting on the way I am at the workplace? What does the new situation require of me and of others? Um, And, you know, some of it's really hard. It's kind of accepting what's going on. Like Deming would tell us, you only have 15% control over your environment. So what are the things that I need to accept that I can't control right now, face the brutal facts as they will, and then go into what I would call, you know, action phase, like proceed with action. And so you do that action phase with a sense of growth mindset, but also with the hardest one is a sense of self-compassion, because guess what? We're going to make mistakes. We're going to learn from it. And what we're dealing with now is just so very different.
0: So, so Deborah, when we, yes. I wanted to interrupt just a sec. Two two things come to mind. One, someone on our one of our participants might have been just promoted to a leadership role, and in a leadership role, you all of a sudden become the punching bag, and the expectation is that you don't have feelings anymore, and that as a leader, you're just going to take whatever your however people many people are reporting to you, fifty people have going on in their day, they're going to dump on you. So practicing this and being more self-aware is key. And then the other thing that came to mind is as we have gotten wisdom, as we've aged, we've learned not to respond right away. Like even if it's an email, sometimes sleeping on it and the next day gives us a different perspective because we want to Uh,
2: immediately react, right? Exactly. And I think the important part of it is we've been kind of, uh, Threading through the conversation here, the things that we've dealt with in the past, you know, we've had ways of doing that in the past that have been very comfortable for us, you know, we've been successful. The the good news is, you know, if it's a crisis, like an environmental natural disaster, we know what it is, it begins, it ends, we can pretty much figure out how everybody's going to come together and be done the pandemic really kind of changed the rules of engagement there. And now what we have to do, there's uncertainty. We don't know what to expect. We don't know how long it's going to go on. So this level of um, ambiguity, if you will, tends to stimulate anxiety. And for that, we need to be able to be in control of ourself and help to expand that level of calmness to others, and then to be able to use that as part of our strategy as as we begin to make these really new and difficult changes that are going to be required to be successful in healthcare. And we have this... Um, example, which is one of the number three things is employee rounding. And, you know, sometimes people have thought about, oh, rounding, we've done it, you know, yeah, nice to do. But really statistically, and from the research basis, effective rounding, especially compassionate rounding has been consistently demonstrated as a very successful approach. And, you know, staff want to be included for all the reasons we've just mentioned. They feel like they're not heard, they're not valued, they're disconnected. These are the types of things that can help us work with them. So the rounding helps with the engagement, the retention, building and fortifying relationships and getting staff to collaborate and it's helpful to consider a focused question. So on, you know, this, we've given you an example of some dialogue that you might have with somebody, you know, being honest about and vulnerable about what's going on. This is, yeah, we're having staffing issues. What's the vulnerability? You know, I need your help. Are you willing to help? And then focus on that. And then you can use a approach, whether it's, uh, I think Kathleen will talk about respect, you know, how do we kind of create more of a sense of respect and collaboration on our unit? I'd like to hear what you think we could do about that. And let's start with smaller things that can help us build that momentum of reconnection.
0: And I would just do a plug here. We um, actually trademarked the term relationship rounds because our team goes on site with organizations and does a train the trainer to help your key leadership really effectively put this relationship rounding into practice to really build on those relationships and connectiveness and community, which all contributes back to retention and people feeling a part of the team. And so if you'd like more information, you have my email there, just send me a note and I'll be happy to share more in detail with you. So as we move forward, Kathleen, unpack it for us. There's a lot here.
1: So well, but I got to do, I got to do rewards. A shout out to Jake, who also supported what Dr. Sestaki was talking about. Another hack he says is to smile at yourself in the mirror, which releases the, the positive chemicals yes. and about the neuroscience. So go Jake, give him a, send him a book too, just because <laughs> Um, I'd like to be generous with George. So here's the, here's, this is a fabulous, exercise we have done many, many times. And the reason I'm holding my microphone is because the landscaper now has come in his big machine next to me here, but there's four components of a, of a healthy team, trust, respect, communication, and competency. This is a wonderful exercise to put up on the board, just like here and put it up in the staff room and ask your staff to anonymously, anonymously this is the important thing, rate the level of trust, give them the definitions, your definitions of trust, respect, communication and competency. And from one being there is absolutely zero to five, it's outstanding, rate the strengths of these pillars. And I would do it as a 24 hour team, if you're a 24 hour or your 12 hour team, whatever it is, you will be shocked. And over here on the top left, if you can see, this is where people were saying, we're giving everything a three under trust, respect, Up on the top, typically what you're going to see is competency is usually usually the highest rated because nowadays it may be different though since COVID because of the different travelers and the brand new nurses here. But if you go through this and go through this process and what we have seen sadly over and over again is the lowest are respect and trust. And I think on the next slide, I have an example of the outcome of one of these. This is a wonderful team we worked with who um, had really challenging issues with feeling respect. And so the non-negotiable, which is what comes from this, this is a collaborative process. This is not you saying this is what's going to happen. This is what we say. A a non-negotiable is that we will manage each other up, where it means acknowledging the strengths of each other, public praise, that reward and recognition. How will you role model? How will you hold each other accountable? So bring a positive attitude, acknowledge others, bring a smile, be the change you want to be. They came up with the staff came up with these. In order to get there, you have to show what does respect look like? What does lack of respect look like? It's it, in, in so many places, what we would hear is I'm sitting in the break room and somebody comes in and they say, hello, Brooke. Hello, Dr. Sizaki, Hello, Libby. And they don't say hello to me. Hey, what am I, chopped liver? It means acknowledge everyone in the room. And so this, this is a wonderful way to work with your staff and find out what, what are we looking for here? It'll, it'll address inclusiveness, community, and all of that.
0: And I'm going to give a plug to Kathleen because I've seen her work with in a difficult environment with angry physicians who didn't have any non-negotiables. And what you're doing is you're establishing new group norms. So we're never assuming that we're all starting on the same page because how I might handle conflict might not be the way Kathleen handles conflict. And what's acceptable for me is not acceptable for Kathleen. And so when you set this even playing field with non-negotiables, that's the only way you can build that pillar of trust.
1: Right, Kathleen? You're exactly right. And so directors of nursing directors do this as a group together, share them with your uh, leaders. And on Rhonda over here said, it's important for teammates to have a sense of belonging especially diversity inclusion it's it's heartbreaking to think about how we our unconscious our unconscious bias excludes people where we we don't give them the same respect the same communication or judge them differently so this is a wonderful exercise just take the word respect and I um, and ask them, what does it look like on this unit? What does lack of respect look like? What can we agree to do? And most importantly, how do we hold each other accountable? Does everybody have to come to mama and say, Brooke wasn't nice to me. You better go talk to her. Or do we agree we'll go to that person together and use that language? And this is the last non-negotiable, We the, the best practice. Sadly, my friends, suffering is happening everywhere in organizations, and it has been happening for a long time albeit pandemic, there's been people who have had miscarriages, divorce, they're, you know, taking care of an elderly parent, um, children who are being bullied, children who are working through transgender issues. There's so much suffering that is going on. And honestly, sadly, I'll admit we were brought to work. Just bring your luggage and leave it at the door. Don't be bringing baggage in the door. We can't lead like that. To be a compassionate leader, we must demonstrate and hold ourselves to self-compassion. So here's a, a, a thing I made up for myself about I my non-negotiable as a leader is I'm going to practice self-compassion, which I've got to not call in work on the weekends, vacations, and trust my team. Very hard to role model. Compassion at work. Be present when in a meeting. Stop looking at your text phone. Be present. Don't judge. Assume positive intent. How many of us know when we see somebody on the phone, we're thinking, oh my God, there they are again, doing something. They're probably shopping. They're probably doing this. Assume positive intent. Don't judge. Inquire. Be open. Be empathic. Demonstrating uh, empathy. Take action to alleviate suffering. That's the thing about compassion. Compassion is just not, man, they look like they're suffering. Compassion is taking a step to alleviate it. And when we're compassionate, we bring it out in others others it's it's a it's one of those neurosciences if i'm good to you then i want to be good to others and good to myself and then practicing compassion for my family because that's another thing we do terribly we do not take we take too much home and so one of the things we have to practice is leaving work at work and choosing to be present at home
0: My favorite saying is no one gets to the end of their life and and says, gosh, I wish I had worked more. No one ever says that. They say, I wish, I hope that my work was valuable and it made a difference, right? Also, so much good information. Um, We've got a couple minutes. I'm going to wrap this up. But if you have any burning questions that you'd like to put into chat, we might have time for one question. Um, My email is going to be available. So look at what we looked at today. We looked at those five best practices Number one, that you're doing a self-assessment of your own relationship mismatch with that dimension that impacts your work engagement and determine the one thing you want to work on. You can't address them all, but pick one. And then number two, what Deborah talked about, building your own deliberate calm. You know, one thing nice about emotional intelligence is not a set skill. It's an evolving skill that can be learned and practiced throughout your life. Um, I'm sure, like me, you see people at all different age groups that could use some additional um, learning in that area. And number three, create your own non negotiables for leading with compassion. What are your stop gaps? What are you willing to tolerate, not tolerate? You know, it, if you were dating, it would be what are your deal breakers, right? Four is conduct those team building exercises using those four pillars. Keep asking questions, keep building that trust. And five, commit to conducting that employee rounding. That focused relationship rounding where you are leading with compassion and connecting with the human being that you're working with. This was an intense webinar. We hope that you had some great takeaways to come away with. And then, of course, we'd love to have a more in depth conversation about what you're experiencing within your organization and how our team might be able to help you.
2: And I just want to add you're not alone, it's so important. There are things, there are people we're here to help been through much of what people have might be experiencing right now. And we just don't want you to feel like you're alone out there. Having a coach can make a world of difference just to have someone align with you and
0: reassure you and walk you through a tough time. So yeah, thank you so much to my uh, expert uh, colleagues, Kathleen and Deborah. And thank you, Libby. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.